chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. In this, the end times, the 21st century, a pandemic, the age of the internet, trends come and go, and the things that capture our attention change day to day and hour to hour. But sometimes trends stick around for a little bit longer, and here at Christmas time, we at Romcom Killjoys like to examine the now several years long trend of the Christmas romcom, first popularized by Hallmark and Lifetime, and now with Netflix and the other streaming services jumping on the bandwagon. This particular type of movie seems to invade every aspect of the Christmas spirit. And yet, today I think we must ask ourselves, has the Christmas rom-com gone too far? Yes. In my professional academic PhD opinion, yes. You know, when a genre bends itself until it's no longer recognizable as the genre, how do you even classify it? Yeah, there is um, there is a little bit of a thing going on here where the Netflix Christmas cinematic universe has just decided to forego generic standards and just do whatever the fuck it wants because it knows people will put these movies on (laughs) while they wrap presents regardless. And not that I need them to all be rom-coms, but I just feel like if you're going to make a Christmas heist movie, (laughs) maybe setting it in a rom-com container is a weird choice, but that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about a bit of the movie like as a standalone, but I also really am curious to hear your thoughts on this strange morphing that Netflix is doing with the NCCU, with the Netflix Christmas Cinematic Universe, because it has, like, the Netflix execs have gone to great lengths to create this weird interwoven collection of films, and I honestly at this point am not entirely sure what they're trying to accomplish. It's it's actually, uh, and someone will write many interesting books about this, but there's something going on here that Jean, the, the French uh, theorist Jean Baudrillard would call uh, the, the simulacra of a simulacra. It is a mirror image of what is already a mirror image. That is like the mm-hmm. NCCU is a mirror image. It is a self-aware version of the Hallmark Christmas rom-com. And now what we're getting is a self-aware version of the self-aware version of the Christmas rom-com. And I, and, and the thing about it is, is that is the ultimate conclusion of, uh, you know, hyper-capitalism and self-aware media consumption, uh, at a rapid TikTok pace. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sure it's what the cavemen dreamed of when they drew on cave walls. You know what I mean? When they were like, what are people going to do in the future? They dreamed up the pr- princess switch. It's actually, it is actually drawn frame for frame on a cave somewhere in France. Fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. Deep in Lascaux is um, a full storyboard for the princess switch three romancing the star. God damn it. I forgot the <laughs> subtitle. How could you forget the subtitle? It has so much to do with the plot of the movie. For this film, Uh I propose a new internet challenge. I call it hashtag Princess Switch Challenge. The challenge is simply pick up your phone, turn on the camera, face it towards you, put it in selfie mode, and then press record and attempt to explain the plot of the Princess Switch 3 without laughing. 
that's the whole challenge. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> um, we dare you, you cowards. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's try it for ourselves, shall we? Because as we all know, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that Netflix movies have the worst plot summaries on the internet. Um, let's just try it uh, ourselves, shall we? Eliza, this week, do you want to be the first to try the, um, the, the, the princess, princess switch, switch challenge? The princess switch challenge? Please be my guest. And I'll, and I'll tell I, you what I think yeah. it's really about. <laughs> you know what? And I'm going to, I'm going to record myself on my camera right now. I'm going to do this for real. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. The Princess Switch 3 is about a very important tradition where the Vatican loans out a valuable golden relic which belonged to St. Nicholas and gets loaned out every year to go onto a random Christmas tree. And so some princesses get permission to hold an international Christmas tree lighting ceremony. (laughs) where they use the the St. Nicholas star, um, but then it gets stolen, and they think, you know, we know someone who has done crime. Let's ask them. And um, and then she happens to be dating, or have been dating, the guy who stole the star. So, like, that's convenient. And then they get it back. And then everyone gets married? Yeah. How'd I do? And a Merry Christmas. Like... Actually, way, uh, frankly, a way better plot summary than the one available on Google for Princess Switch 3. Does it indeed clarify why or how any of those things occur? No. No, it does not. But is it accurate? Sure. that It sure is. I congratulate you, actually. Thank you. I worked really hard on that. <laughs> um, do you want me to tell you what I think it's really about? What, what the fuck do you think this movie is really about? Here we go. I'm going to say it. The Princess Switch 3 is about how at Christmas, like every time of the year, the landed gentry, the aristocracy, the 1%, and the privileged live by different rules than the rest of us. Merry fucking Christmas. Here, here. <laughs> Merry like, fucking Christmas. Like, I, when they, when they went to the, first of all, when the plot revealed that Fiona, after kidnapping Stacy, didn't go to jail, but went to a convent, question mark, to do community service, question mark, question mark, um, and that she would be released from her community service in secret to help them seal back the relic of St. Nicholas, I just thought, there are millions of children in the U.S. who have incarcerated parents who they will not see on Christmas and may never see again. And Fiona of Pembroke, or whatever, is going to bust out of jail at Christmas to steal back a fucking diamond or whatever. And uh, it it is in those moments that I remember that Netflix is a soulless corporation, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, uh, I just get tired. That's that's my take. Yeah, the, I mean, we talked last year, or maybe in July, whenever we covered the last Princess Switch movie, we talked about the very strange political structure of Montenero and whatever the other country is that's in this movie, which I don't think they ever mention, except that it exists because it has a prince and a princess. Um, And that you can be the Duchess of Montenero and then when your father and uncle die, become the queen also of Montenero, um, which is not how, how duchies or queenships work in any other European nation that we're aware of, but it does um, in the NCCU. So like we've already established that the rules are different here. 
This is a political system that is similar, but just slightly off. It's like a mirror universe system to the Western monarchies that we're familiar with. Um, And so maybe it's not unusual for someone who has committed high crimes and treason against the crown to be granted by the crown um, nice community service at a convent. Um, But for that community service to be determined by a, um, a small hearing committee uh, who make a decision with just them and the mother superior of the nunnery and can change their decision at any moment if they just decide to have another hearing at the convent. Maybe that's common in Montenegro, but I find Perhaps. it a little odd. Yeah, to, to, to say the least. And also, uh, what's his name? Peter, having worked for Interpol and then been suspected of stealing diamonds through Interpol, but then he was cleared of all charges, but his his like reputation was ruined. I There's just a lot of moments where it's like, yeah, this person messed up pretty bad, but they're rich, so it doesn't matter. It's fine. It's um, fine. On that note, I also think we need to keep a running tab of all of the Chekhov's guns that are never fired in this movie. The number one of which we do, which you have mentioned being that they mention there was a suspected diamond heist, which Peter was suspected of, but then cleared of all charges. And in the moment they said this, I thought it was heavily implied that Fiona had in fact stolen the diamonds since she is, as we know, a criminal and a thief who was masquerading as a, you know, upstanding member of the Royal Society, um, and he was in love with her. So I was like, oh, he was in Interpol, but he was in love with her, so she stole the diamonds, and he covered for her, so he got in trouble for it, but he didn't actually steal them, which is why he wasn't arrested. Like, this is going to come out in dialogue later. Nope. They just, he, they thought he stole diamonds, and he didn't, and that's why he's not in Interpol anymore. Yeah, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of exposition like that that is covering up something that they just, like, that, that, you, that is never going to come through. Like, for example, another version of this, another Chekhov's gun, is uh, when Princess... Oh, goodness. What's the, the stepdaughter's name? Help me out here. No fucking clue. Princess not appearing in this film. Princess not appearing in this film is Skyping with her parents to say, hey, you know, everything's messed up because of the weather. I'm not going to be able to fly in until later from my ballet academy in New York. So, you know, see you never. She does show up eventually. But I thought... There was a part of my brain that was like, is this going to be so bad shit that she is the one orchestrating the diamond heist? Because I would have been into that. But no, instead, she just sort of like shows up later and it gives us a reason for Queen Margaret's husband to go away for a while. So she can safely be Fiona and seduce Hunter, whatever his name is. Yeah, there was like repeated mentions of a snowstorm coming and you're going, oh, okay, so like one of them's going to get snowed in and not be able to help with the heist, which is why one of the other ones is going to have to dress as Fiona. Like, I see how they're setting these up, like setting up all the pins to knock them down. I get it. A snowstorm's coming. Classic Christmas setup. Like, I'm here for it. No, no snowstorm. Um, They literally mention it as two of them are getting into a helicopter and you're like, oh, well, this is a terrible idea. No, they just go on a date in a helicopter and then return. Doesn't affect anything um nope. I, I genuinely think they came up with that idea as a reason to send what's his face the american boy off for like a day so that he could then come back and see all three of them dressed as fiona and have a what moment 
which I feel like there were better ways to have set up, but they didn't go for any of the better ways. I think in general, they're sort of Shakespearean, we have many twins and they're all getting confused with each other jokes were underutilized. There's one pretty good one when Stacy pretends to be Fiona before the board to convince them to let uh, Fiona out forever or whatever. And they say, you know, the board says, oh, it's amazing. It's like you're a completely different person from the last time we saw you. And she says, it truly does. And in in Shakespearean plays, that would have been considered quite funny. And they would have had a series of these kind of jokes, right? Where it's like constant punning about how like, absolutely, I'm different from the last time you saw me. I'm not quite myself today. You know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go into that cheesy shit, like just, just do it. You know, like if you're gonna be a simulacra of a simulacra, just go for it. Embrace it. Do your worst. I agree. I have to say, I actually did laugh at that moment when she was like, I really am a different person. And it wasn't high humor, but like it worked. The joke, you it know, was it was fun. said, I got the joke, it landed, I laughed. It may be the only time in the movie where I laughed because I found something humorous and not because it was all I could do to keep from crying or screaming or like hitting something in confusion. Um, mm-hmm. I really, you know, that that Pokemon meme of like it hurt itself in its confusion, that's how I felt watching most of this movie. <laughs> all right, well, what was <laughs> the most confusing just, part? It hit me, hit me. It just, like, again, this is presented to us as if it is going to be a Christmas rom-com as if it is going to be the third installment of this series of Christmas based romance stories. Um, And I think it's worth noting that this is now the second trio of Christmas rom-coms we've gotten from Netflix. Like we've already had one, two and three of the Christmas Prince movies. And now this is the third princess switch movie. And in both instances, in both trilogies, I really feel like by the third movie, they go off the fucking rails which and just go into like a completely different genre in a completely different direction with the writing um and in a completely different direction with sort of like the the heart of the story the main crux of the stories and i just find that to be so odd in like the long you know history of filmed trilogies i feel like if anything either they sort of dip like you've got a good first one and then a shit second one and a third a third one that's quite good or the first one is good and the second two are bad because they're just trying to like recreate the magic of the first one um and obviously all these movies i'm talking about are bad but it's i think quite unusual (laughs) to have the trend of like movie one sets the tone and the style and the structure movie two is almost identical in style and structure and tone maybe just like either a little worse or because they've gotten more money a little bit better and then movie three is just like a completely different thing that happens to involve the same characters like honest to god movie three in both of these trilogies i felt like felt like an au fan fiction where someone was like i'll just use all the names but this time it's gonna be a fucking heist movie or like this time there's gonna be a goddamn ancient curse (laughs) on the royal family you know like what is it in the writer's room that by the third movie they're just like fuck it let's do something new and not new in a like oh let's just mix it up a little bit and introduce some new characters which is what they did with the second one of these by introducing the third vanessa hudgens but in a like what if we just wrote a movie that was completely unrelated but used most of the same actors yeah like i and i and i sort of get it i mean i guess you sort of run out of things to do although Frankly, if I were them, I would have just gone full hog and had a fourth Vanessa Hudgens. Like, let's just, we've said this from the beginning. Just go full orphan black. In, in, in Enjoy it. Have fun. Just go absolutely apeshit. People would love it. But no, instead I'll we have like- cloned for Christmas. I'll be cloned for Christmas. Come on, y'all. It would be so, I just need to write it. It's fine. But okay. 
The the thing about this though that's sort of funny is like it's a heist movie, but it's like not a particularly interesting heist movie. Like the whole time I kept no. thinking about Ocean's Eleven, which to mm-hmm. me, in my opinion, is the finest heist movie ever made. I right. love that film. It's just magnificent in every way. It's cool. It's slick. It keeps you guessing. You're not a hundred percent sure about how the heist is going to work until it happens. And then this mm-hmm. movie. Our MacGuffin, there's just no weight to it. And that's sort of sad, right? Like our our Maltese Falcon that we're following around, this like star of peace, it's important because we don't want, we don't want Montanero to damage its relationship to the Vatican, which again, we have to wonder what century this is. Like Fiona's doing community (laughs) service in a convent. Montanero is concerned about its relationship to the Vatican, whatever. I mean, we are talking about a Christmas, um, a Christmas dystopian society here. Like, let's not forget that. True. So obviously the you know Catholic church is going to be important to that. Although this is the first movie in any of these films where they've acknowledged the actual religious part of Christmas in any way, but still. Which makes me wonder, I mean, if we continue our great discussions about the Christmas wars and mm-hmm. uh, Aldovia and Panglia and their role in all of this, I still maintain that Aldovia is not actually a Christian nation, but it is a Christmas nation. So mm-hmm. it makes you wonder, because I mean, they never mentioned religion ever. You have to wonder if Montenero is a Christian nation mm-hmm. and maybe they are a, diametrically opposed to Panglia and Aldovia because of their difference in theology around Christmas. Although, spoiler alert, Simon from Aldovia oh my God. does show up in the movie. So maybe their relationships aren't that bad after all. Janelle, how I screamed when Simon showed up. I was so mad. It's the dumbest cameo because literally all he does is show up and say, hello, remember me? I'm Simon. Okay. And that's it. Janelle, (laughs) do we think they're setting up, are you ready for this, a Simon spinoff? Oh, God help us. Please no. (laughs) Please, Netflix. Please don't. Like, he's fine. Please. Please. I did notice, and I hate that I noticed this, but I did notice that Simon was not with the girlfriend from the Christmas Prince movies, right? Like, he dates the the black friend for What's-Her-Face, Blondie. And in this, he was just with some other blonde woman. And I was like, oh, Simon broke up with the friend. I did have that thought, actually. I was like, um, where is she? Why didn't they get their Christmas wedding? What's going Janelle, on? Here? We're in so deep. We're in so deep. I know too much about the NCCU for my liking. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know what? That's just that's just where we are today. And right. That's okay. But going sure. going back to the heist movie problems. I think that there's sort of three major areas where they really fall in recreating an Ocean's Eleven type heist kind of situation, right? Mm -hmm. One is, as you say, the stakes are non-existent, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a little unclear what will happen to their relationship with the Vatican if this star is lost, but it just kind of feels like they'll get in trouble, right? Like, it doesn't, it's not even, God forbid on the level of the third Christmas Prince movie where they're like, this is a peace treaty that we need to sign to like maintain diplomatic relations. You're not like, I think the Vatican's going to wage war if you lose this thing. It's just going to be like a bad PR move. So already I'm like not too worried about this thing being stolen. The way it was stolen seemed very low key and the way they get it back is very simple as well. Right. So like you, you don't really care about the MacGuffin and the nature of a MacGuffin is that it can be anything, but the idea is that you're supposed to care about this anything, right? You're either supposed to like, you want them to get the money or you're worried if they don't get the thing back, they'll lose a relationship with someone, right? Like there has to be a reason the MacGuffin is important and there was none. Number two, the heist itself was not interesting enough. And, like, they tried to, you know, give us a scene where they're learning how to jump through the laser beam, you know, grid, which is always a dumb scene no matter how you do it. But, okay, fine. 
they tried to like, you know, have the guy in the van who's typing on his computer and changing all of the camera work. But it was all so basic that I was like, I feel like they could have just put on a dress, wandered into this party, shuffled off to go to the bathroom and ended up in his study, opened the door, grabbed the thing and run. And it would have had the same effect as this like semi-complicated heist they put together. It just didn't feel worth it. So no, the it, heist yeah. itself was not exciting. No, it, it and and I I also just like and a shout out to friend of the show Daniel Hubble who I know on his history blog is currently working on an epic project about uh, saint relics which are Ooh. please Google this super weird. <laughs> it was so funny to me to see that the relic of Saint Nicholas that they have is this like opulent stone that supposedly yes. belonged to Saint Nicholas when listen. I, I understand. Netflix does not want to be like, ah, oh, yes, the Vatican is coming with the femur of St. Nicholas for us <laughs> to put on the tree. But the truth is that that's how weird Catholicism specifically is about saints and relics and even Christmas, right? Like, religion is weird, and that's okay. It's not always this, like, opulent, over-the-top sort of ecclesiastical money structure. And and I I really wish there had been a little bit more explanation of, like, why did St. Nicholas have a giant fire sapphire? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Well, and there was there was a bit of the sort of Indiana Jones, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark issue too of like, you know, Jesus wouldn't have a golden cup. Like St. Nicholas was a monk from, you know, whatever, like the third century who was famous for caring for the poor, right? Like this was not some, you know, Medici Pope who got himself sainted because he felt like it, right? Like, this is someone who's literally famous for being, living in, like, small-town Turkey, essentially, and, like, taking care of poor children in his area. Like, why would he have a giant, gold-encrusted, jeweled star that's made specifically to go on top of a Christmas tree, which is a trend from, like, 18th century Germany? <laughs> like, none of it makes sense. It doesn't. And I, I think that my explanation for it is actually related to a running issue that you and I both have with the entire NCCU, which is, it must be said, done on purpose. This is not because Netflix lacks money. Let's be very, very clear. No. <laughs> Netflix has made a artistic and an artistic choice to have bargain basement production design for yeah. these films. Why? Because they want to portray a sale racket TJ Maxx version of European aristocratic dynastic wealth. Because mm -hmm. what do Americans not like? European landed gentry dynastic <laughs> wealth. It is not something that we enjoy looking at, right? It makes us sort of mm -hmm. mad. It's antithetical to the whole basis of our country. So instead, they're just like, what would it be like if, you know, your neighbor, Stacy, who's just a perfectly lovely woman who sells cosmetics for Mary Kay through her own version of a, um, a Christmas in Switzerland party. And that's what these movies look like. And that's fine. It's perfectly lovely. But it also creates this worldview where like, ah, yes, of course, like the saints would have these like big, beautiful jewels. Like that's the version of luxury. Like that's the version of mm -hmm. power that is expected in that view instead of what it actually is, which is so much weirder. And it must be said again, things like, people's finger bones the the piece of a saint's skull for example which i find right. much better oh way cooler but way creepier and less fun to put on a christmas tree in the center of town i would think less fun for but... much more fun for me <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, so that's so that's we don't care about the thing. We don't care about the heist. And finally, they try to do in this one. Um, honestly, I kept thinking of Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve as well, not just because like they're my go-to heist movies, but because I genuinely think the writers were just going off of the basic structure of those movies because they try to do what both of them do, which is throw in an emotional hook for one of the characters involved in the heist that you learn about through the course of the heist. And when done well, as in Ocean's Eleven, that works great. When done shittily, as in Ocean's Twelve, it doesn't work so well. And when done like absolute cold dog shit, like in this movie, it just (laughs) makes the movie worse. And so they tried to give you these sort of emotional threads about Fiona. They tried to have this, you know, this sad story about how she was abandoned by her mother to live at boarding school during the holidays, like as proof that they had once watched some version of A Christmas Carol. Um, And then they tried to have this emotional thread about this, like the one she let got away, you know, let get away with this man who she dated, but they didn't work out, but they're still in love. But then there's also the emotional thread of like the shitty guy she dated in the middle of that. And I cared about none of it. The revelation that a member of the aristocracy, who we already know is estranged from her family, didn't have a very attentive mother, was not a revelation. Um, The idea that she was stuck at expensive-ass boarding school uh, during Christmas did not make me feel sad enough to, like, want to rectify the situation, especially knowing what a shit person she became. Um, And the chemistry and or backstory with both of the guys was not interesting enough to me for me to like really care how it ended up, especially because you knew from the beginning, like, okay, she's going to end up with it with Peter, the, you know, the Interpol guy. He's hot. They don't have a lot of chemistry. There's no background here that I care about. Oh, look, they ended up together, right? Like there was no growth. There wasn't a moment where I had a revelation about her or about him that like explained their relationship in a way I hadn't already understood. Neither one of them I felt really went through like a character growth or character change moment you just were like oh they're not dating and now they are yeah and I also feel like it's part like the whole idea of centering the plot on Fiona's like interior emotional world in general is a choice that I just find kind of like meh because lately there has been this trend and a lot of cultural critics have picked up on it there's been a big trend to humanize villains this is something Mm -hmm. that's been complained about a lot with Marvel specifically yes and in this case you know, Fiona isn't like, we're not supposed to be scared of her exactly. We're supposed to be delighted by her in a sort of Cruella de Vil sort of way. But I actually do think there's something to be said for letting villains just be villains. Like, just just let her be bad. This movie needs someone who's a little bad, you know, who is a little right. remorseless, who is a little irredeemable. It needs that spice. And And when you take her teeth out, She's much less fun as a character, I think. Like, that was her mm-hmm. entire appeal in the second movie, as as limited as that appeal was. Right. Like, you've already been given two characters whose basically entire characterization is that they are lovely women, right? Like, one's supposed to be a little more stri- like straight-laced and one's supposed to be a little more fun-loving. But they're just sort of genuine, kind-hearted people who like the 11-year-old girl and have very sweet relationships with their respective love interests. And so if you're going to add in a third person, they need to bring something new to the mix And the idea in the second film is that Fiona is fun and spicy and bad and doesn't follow the rules and, you know, annoys everyone and doesn't care. And so then bring her in and by the end have her be nice and kind and have saved Christmas for everyone. Just meant that there's three identical Vanessa Hudgenses, both in visuals and in characterization. It's all so flat, like incredibly flat. And, And all these movies are, and I get it, that's what they're looking to do. 
But I mean, if you're going to go whole hog, like we said, on a, on a heist plot for a Christmas movie, just have fun with it. Let her be bad. Let her run off with Peter. Right. Let Peter steal the Star of Hope or a Star of Peace or whatever. Let them break into St. Nicholas's tomb and steal his weird pelvis bone. Like, let them do it. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Well, and they, in fact, could have had her help them, had her save Christmas, and then sent her fucking back to the nunnery, which I actually think would have been such a bold but brilliant move if at the end they were like, thanks, Fiona, boom, slam the door in her face. And, you know, and then it goes back to her just, like, sweeping up. That would have been so funny. Um, It could have been, you know, there's a lot of different ways they could have done it that would have been really interesting. I also think, and again, they went in this weird heist movie direction, which was so strange, but it's what they did. But if you wanted the movie to have the Christmas spirit vibe, right? Like if the idea is that Netflix is trying to recreate these Hallmark and Lifetime movies and get this like, I'll watch it over and over again because it's bland, but it's Christmassy and lovely. What I would have actually done with this movie if they want something that's going to redeem Fiona is I would have essentially created an American small town Christmas movie movie where for whatever reason, she ends up in the small town, right? Either she is serving community service, but she ends up like working in a small town in Montanero, or she, um, you know, for whatever reason, has to go into witness protection. And so they like send her to the States and she ends up in Iowa or, you know, something like that, right? And then she's got to work off her sentence or wait until they've found the person who she's hiding from in witness protection, who, you know, is her old boyfriend who stole the diamonds or whatever, right? And while she's there, she goes to the Christmas market and has a nice little ice skating scene and, you know, and meets a boy who's local and who has the true meaning of Christmas in his heart and she learns how to be kind and blah, 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 but then has to, like, come back and reintegrate with the royal life, right? Like, there's interesting ways to do sort of the reverse of what they've done with these couple of princess movies, where instead of having the American who ends up in the castle have the person from the castle who ends up in America. And then they could have had all of those elements that make these movies, you know, that make this genre, but it would have felt more cohesive and made sense. And I wouldn't have minded them sort of rescuing her character because that's the trope you're expecting. Mm. Whereas trying to do it this way, if you're going to do a heist, then I want it to be fun and sexy and badass and have someone screw them over in the end. Yeah. And that's just not what happened. Well, and, and I think your point is really well made too, about a sort of lacking spirit of Christmas. Now, Listen, I'm usually the first one to complain when people are shoving the spirit of Christmas down your throat. But I think you're (laughs) right that like, in this case, the redemption of a bad character is a really good place to use something like the spirit of Christmas, right? And the spirit of generosity. And they even bring this up when Stacy is before the review board and, you know, they, they talk about, well, but isn't something at Christmas that we're supposed to do is to be more generous and more forgiving and kind in our hearts be, and and the implication being to be more Christ-like, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And I actually think that that could have been like a really subtle and nice theme for the kind of version of the film you're talking about. Even for this version of the film, you know, walking through, maybe even seeing Fiona's background through the eyes of Stacy as Stacy is trying to forgive her for kidnapping mm-hmm. her, right? Which is like no small thing, would have been a really kind of interesting Christmas story. But in general, I think that's something that I often find lately with these Netflix Christmas movies that the true meaning of the season is often getting lost. And, and I think that's kind of sad because the thing that I love about Christmas, you know, is that I genuinely do love that it's a season about kindness and forgiveness and reminding yourself about what matters and, and being close to the ones that you love the most. And I don't know, like maybe I'm just getting soft. Maybe I'm getting soft as we get closer to Christmas, but I'm, I really feel, I'm really 
I'm missing that right now? <laughs> Look, maybe you're not getting soft. I think what we're touching on is that there are narrative flaws here, right? Yeah. Because you can have, if you're going to build a story that's about, let's just call it the true meaning of Christmas, but it's about whatever sort of soft moral or soft lesson you want to put in at the end, you still have to have a narrative arc that earns that lesson at the end. And these movies don't. And so I don't think it's that like you've gone soft and are now like, oh, I wish there was more spirit of Christmas in this. I think it's that you're watching a movie which is telling you it's about the spirit of Christmas, but doesn't deliver on that. And so as someone who cares so much about storytelling, your inner self is going, why are you not delivering what you're telling me you're delivering? Right? So like you get this scene where Stacy is disguised as Fiona and she's on her behalf talking to this review board in order to get her off the hook for this community service punishment, this dumbass community service punishment. But at this point, Stacy has not done anything to re-ingratiate herself with, or sorry, Fiona has not done anything to re-ingratiate herself with Stacy. By the end, Fiona saves Christmas. At the end, she shows up with the star. She helps to, you know, whatever it is, decorate the palace. Like, she helps, like, bring the spirit. But that shit hasn't happened yet. She hasn't done anything to apologize or make up for what she's done. We just, for no reason, get Stacy being like, well, I've learned my lesson. So you yeah. should let me go. And then they're like, yay, we got her off. And then four scenes later, she earns it. And it's also not like a Stacy who then shows up and she's like, look, you haven't done anything to apologize to me, but I did this for you because that's what family does or something like that, right? Like there's none of that. It's just a scene where they get her off of her sentence because they needed another reason to have one of them switch and dress as another one. And then right. at the end, it's all good, right? And like, I, I liked that switch, right? Like from a narrative perspective on a, you know, just the basic drawing board version of this movie, right? Like the, you know, I like the idea that one of them ends up having to dress as her and go talk to the review board. That makes sense. It feels kind of classic. Like, oh yeah, she's going to have to like think of all the things she likes about Fiona now and say them to the board. And then you get the joke about, yeah, I'm a different person. But it happened at the wrong part of the movie, yeah. And there was no reason for her to stand up for herself, for um, Fiona, or any reason for her husband, Andrew, John, yes. James, the king, Chad. The king? Yeah. <laughs> the whoever. There was no reason for him to defend her either, right? So at that point in the movie, if anything, they should have gone in and been like, I haven't learned my lesson. You should give me four more years. Ha 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 ha. And then maybe later on, regret having done that and then like intervene on her behalf to get the sentence reduced or something. It just, mm -hmm. it felt like they were like, oh, we need this scene. We don't know what the scene's supposed to entail. Let's just write in a nice message about her having grown as a person, even though she hasn't and no one thinks she has. Okay, whatever. You know, right? And then at the end, when whichever one of them is making the proclamation as they put the Christmas star in the tree, you know, there was some line about like, and we'll all remember the kindness and generosity of the season. And it was like, well, nothing in this movie has been about kindness or generosity, right? I don't mind that being the moral of the story. This is a Christmas movie. You expect that. But there's got to be a reason that's the moral of the story. Well, exactly. And I think that's where this issue of the simulacra of a simulacra comes in, right? It's where these movies mm -hmm. know what is expected of them to the point where they don't want to tell us a compelling story. They don't care about giving us a compelling story. Exactly what you said. The emotional climax of this movie should have been about resolution and reconciliation between these three women who are related, question mark. Um, <laughs> but instead, the emotional climax of the movie we are forced to believe is Fiona meeting her mom and or like making it work with this Peter guy. 
And it just doesn't feel like anything. It doesn't feel good. It's just something that they do because they know they're making what is supposed to be a Christmas rom-com. And I worry about the, the, the constant sort of consumption of media objects like this because it only encourages producers like Netflix to do stuff like this, to make these like really empty, <laughs> I mean, these empty products is the best way I can describe it, right? Yeah. Um, and on that note, I want to throw this out there just to continually and, and furthermore blow the minds of any of you who are interested in this sort of media verisimilitude of a Christmas franchise thing that's happening. So there were a few moments near the end of the movie where I was like, oh, my God, Stacy's pregnant. Right. She says something about, mm. oh, this is so insane. I feel queasy. And I was like, there it is. It's going to end with a pregnancy coming. announcement because we had marriage number one in the first movie. We had marriage number two in the second movie, like the baby's coming. And then the movie just ended. And I was like, OK, so that's yet another Chekhov's gun. However, at basically the same time that they released this film on Netflix, Netflix released a YouTube video with a deleted scene from the movie. Oh, and no. in the final set of scenes, when they're at this Christmas tree lighting religious and multi-country um, diplomatic celebration, whatever the fuck it is. There is a moment when, what's the one who's not Stacy or Fiona? Maggie, Margaret. Margaret. There is a moment when Margaret, the queen, comes up to Stacy, and they've each got their respective boys with them, and says, we have very exciting news, we have to tell you. And Stacy's like, whatever could it be, as if anything follows that other than a marriage proposal or a baby. And she says, I'm pregnant. And Stacy no. goes, so am I no. with twins to what? which Margaret responds, me too. And then they say, what? And then they all hug. And then it jumps to the next scene, which was kept into the movie. So Netflix wrote and filmed and edited a scene in which both girls who are not actually related are pregnant at the same time, both with twins and then cut it out, but released it at the exact same time as the movie. So, I can't believe I'm about to ask this, Eliza. Is that canon? See, now we have to fucking discuss whether or not this is goddamn canon. Which Netflix knew, right? They knew if they released it and they made it clear exactly where it falls in the movie that then all of us would be like, is it canon and it just got edited out? Or did it get edited out because it's not canon? And now we have to wonder and discuss if next year there's going to be a Princess Switch 4 involving two sets of twin babies. The idea of playing a shell game with four babies and then figuring out who belongs to whom is hilarious. It's hysterical. Um, I don't want it to happen. Someone, please, some, let's start a letter writing campaign now. No, Netflix, you've officially gone too far. I won't have it, especially because if you call this movie Princess Switch 4 Switched at Birth and not All Be Cloned for Christmas, I am going to rage. I am going to burn everything to the ground. I swear to you. I feel like this takes us back to our initial question and our definitive answer of yes, you can go too far with these movies. Yes, Virginia, you can go too far. This is the time every week where we take a break to thank our patrons on Patreon and specifically our romantic leads who are Bob Esther, Ian Trey, and Melissa. Um, yeah. I, I would break into any um, European prince's strange party house for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, would, I would go to weird, almost-themed Christmas parties at shitty, um, cheaply, 
purchased castles with you guys. Yeah, I, I would venture into just about any Eyes Wide Shut themed Christmas party for you. If you want to become part of our Patreon family, you can go to patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys and become a patron for as little as $1 a month. You will get access to behind-the-scenes uh, clips and bits and tidbits and this month some um, playlists of our favorite Christmas music. So go check that out. Also, you can check out our merch shop at romcomkilljoys.threadless.com where you can purchase t-shirts and pencil cases and pillows and stickers that say things like Widow of the Christmas Wars. Um, and you're not a true knight unless you fulfilled the quest given to you by the old crone in the woods, which <laughs> is a reference to the other Vanessa Hudgens Netflix Christmas series, which is also somehow part of the same universe, A Night Before Christmas. Check out that episode as well. Also like us on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget, and don't forget to share your hashtag Christmas switch challenge and try to tell us what you think this movie is about without laughing. Well, as I think uh, safe to say that we're going to be doing antidotes this week. Yeah. And maybe a stiff drink. Um, what are your antidotes for us this week? Um, well, one of the things that I just kept finding myself thinking about as I was thinking about this weird NCCU is, of course, the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I do think in many ways Netflix is trying to emulate as far as media coverage, um, if not style and genre. Um, but the MCCU, no, but the MCU currently also has a Christmas series, which is out. Uh, the series Hawkeye, which follows the adventures of Clint Barton, aka Hawkeye, as he trains Kate Bishop, the new Hawkeye, takes place at Christmas in New York and has a very Home Alone 2 slash Die Hard kind of a feel, which is a genre choice that they've made very purposefully and works for the series, as opposed to the genre choices of the Princess Switch movies, which they've made for seemingly no reason and don't work. So if you are interested in continuing the, you know, um, insane wheel of media control over our lives, but want to do so with something where it feels like someone actually made decisions on purpose, you can go watch Hawkeye. It's been a lot of fun so far. I'm enjoying it. Now, my music suggestion for this week, this movie, it made me so mad, Janelle. Just like so angry at everything in our world that led to the creation of this movie. So I wanted music that was a little more intense than my normal offerings. Uh, something that was fun, but powerful. And so I'm going to suggest the Christopher Lee Christmas album. Yes, Christopher I love Lee this. is was Christopher Lee was an actor who many of you will know from um, the Lord of the Rings movies or from the Star Wars prequels or from um, the old Dracula movies. He was amazing. He's one of those guys who everything you learn about him is incredible. He was a spy in World War II. Um, and in his 70s, he decided that he wanted to release a series of heavy metal albums, including two about his ancestor Charlemagne. And then when he was, I believe, 90, he released a heavy metal Christmas album called Christopher Lee Christmas. And it is super fun and super excellent. I would especially recommend the song Jingle Hell. And yeah, that's that's what I'm listening to following this movie, because I just can't deal with the sweet and the saccharin this week. All right. So that's that's for me. Janelle, what are you recommending this week? Um, all right. Well, 
so my my interest in the uh, spirit of Christmas in these movies has really drawn me to thinking about the spirit of the season, what I think is the um, the true spirit of Christmas, which is about, as I said, generosity and kindness and taking care of people in our communities and also showing people that we love the most, um, that we love them at this dark time of the year. So I wanted to recommend actually to um, sort of giving opportunities to our listeners. Um, as I said, it really pissed me off that Fiona just got busted out of jail because she has privilege at Christmas. So I'm going to recommend there's a campaign right now through an organization called the Prison Fellowship. They are a restorative justice organization it's working on prison reform and something that they do at Christmas is called their Angel Tree Christmas Program, where you can make a donation and it will be matched to give presents to um, children of incarcerated parents and to set up these, like, through local organizations, um, kind of Christmas reunions between uh, parents and children uh, who are affected by incarceration. So that's uh, the Prison Fellowship, their Angel Tree Christmas Program. Uh, make a donation. They're doubling them up to $60,000 right now. Um, I would also recommend looking at at Trans Santa, uh, which is a movement primarily on Instagram uh, to fulfill anonymously the wish lists of trans youth at Christmas. Um, I donated last year. It was so great. It's such a cool um, program. It's totally grassroots. Uh, it's not associated with a nonprofit as far as I know. Uh, and it's just really great. I couldn't recommend enough um, going in there and being being uh, being a Santa for trans youth this, this winter. Um, and finally, as Eliza said, we're working on an epic Christmas playlist for all of you. And um, again, in this spirit of like what it really means to celebrate Christmas and how it can be a very hard time of the year where we should be as generous as possible, I'm going to recommend a very sad Christmas song, which is Phoebe Bridger's cover of Merle Haggard's song, If We Make It Through December, uh, which is a very sad song about a dad, just a hardworking dad, just trying to provide his daughter with a nice Christmas. And it's just a good reminder that, you know, Christmas is beautiful but it is also a time about giving and sometimes giving means scraping and working hard and being generous when you don't even have the means to be. And there is something kind of beautiful and caring about that. So that's um, the, the Angel Tree program, Trans Santa, and If We Make It Through December, Phoebe Bridger's cover. Those are some really lovely recommendations. Thank you. Let us know if you make some donations to the um, Angel Tree program or Trans Santa. Let us know on social media. Yeah, we'd love to know that you guys are supporting them, um, and we will be supporting them as well. So um, despite the insanity of this film and of the NCCU in general and of what the year has become, we hope you're all having a good Christmas season, a good holiday season, and that the spirit of Christmas comes at a narratively appropriate time for you but hey you know what if you're conducting a heist at christmas like please um seize the means of production have a great time just make sure you do it in a fun way you know yeah if you're conducting a heist to steal a giant gold star from the vatican please don't return it thank you <laughs> and thank you <laughs> <laughs> this is a psa thank you for listening to the rom-com killjoys podcast if you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See you next time. Don't set up the kissing and